that, uh, wow, what a joy to be here this morning. And 30 years ago, Rachel would introduce herself as Rachel Goins, and she said, my dad is Dr. John. And they'd say, oh, we know him. Yeah, okay, that's cool. Now, 30 years later, I say, hello, I'm Dr. John, and my, my daughter is Rachel. And they say, oh, we know Rachel. So, yes, you know, so things have changed dramatically. So, uh, thank you for being here on a Saturday morning. My goodness gracious, I know you had some other options. When Dave called you about going and playing golf this morning, that, um, and you said, no, I can't do that because I'm going to a workshop. And he said, oh, cool, you know, what kind of a workshop are you going to? And you said, a depression workshop. And he goes, oh, cool, man. So he gets on the phone to Steve and says, hey, listen, <laughs> you know, we got to do something. He's going to a depression workshop or something. But uh, thank you for being here on this beautiful Saturday morning. And uh, I hope that what we are going to talk about this morning is helpful to you or to somebody that you know, because certainly we have a lot of issues around mental health within particularly the state of Colorado, but across our nation as well. So, let's get started then this morning, all right? All of us experience depression in some form or another at some time throughout our life, you know? Your life is just kind of going along, and, and then you kind of get a down day or a down week, and you feel kind of blue, and things aren't going very well, and you just, you know, kind of feel the blahs and all of that. And uh, you go and talk to somebody, or you get back in saddle doing some work, or you go exercise, or you eat a Snickers bar, or something like that, and pretty soon then you're back up and you're ready to go. Um, and uh, things seem to be going pretty well for you. What we want to talk about this morning is that depression that doesn't just go down like this, but it goes down and down and down and crash down here where it's what we call clinical depression, severe depression, whatever it is that we term it, because those are the things that can really create some difficulties for us. That, um, in your first note there, you see the different types of depression. And that's taken out of the DSM. Are you familiar with the DSM? Eh, probably not, you don't need to be. This is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. See? And I'm sure you're in here someplace. Yeah. I am in two or three different places. This is what doctors use to diagnose. It has all the symptoms, all of the, the uh, issues for a variety of mental disorders. And this is what the insurance companies use when they're going to pay for, for mental health treatment, mental health service, they look at the DSM-5. This is the fifth edition of it. Every 10 years, they redo it and correct it or add to it or do something with it. And um, so this one here that I've given to you on the first handout comes from that, and it's called the different types of depressive disorders. So you see that number one is the major depressive disorder, that's rather serious, that would be F24.7 or something like that in the DSM. And uh, then the insurance companies would know that sure enough they cover mental health, severe mental health uh, issues around depressive disorder. The second one 
is the persistent depressive disorder. That's where a person is depressed um, for two or three days, several days a week, during a two-year period of time. And so that's kind of the depression where it's there for a two-year period of time and uh, is really kind of chronic. The other, of course, is the bipolar depressive episode associated with bipolar where a person really hits bottom depressed and then they might go up really feel good the next few days and then they feel really bad and bipolar, bipolar issues, of course, are, are a, an issue that, that mental health experts can deal with as well. The other is the postpartum depression and this is very common generally for ladies but sometimes for men as well that uh, after a child has been born then after all the excitement and all the things that happened there that, that uh, they go through a period of time of being rather depressed and so it really is important to be able to get some help if you are aware of uh, just having a, a new baby or you know recently or you know somebody who is then certainly you want to see about whether there might be experiencing some postpartum depression or not. The other one there on the bottom of that is premenstrual dysphoric disorder. That's during the cycle. And uh, certainly people can experience, women can experience the depression during those times as well. Seasonal affective disorder, we'll talk a little bit more about that. That's called SAD, seasonal affective disorder. And many times during like January or sometime, maybe Christmas time, maybe December, you really kind of go through a time of being depressed and, and you know, the sun isn't shining very much and, and it's kind of cloudy, kind of gloomy, snowy. And so that's called seasonal affective disorder. And certainly there's help and there's treatment for that as well. Another one is, is, uh, is uh, the atypical depression. And that is what we'll be talking about as well, the variety of uh, kinds of depressions that can exist because of that. And it's interesting because depression is really prevalent among folks, particularly around Colorado. There's been a lot of information, a lot of emphasis on the mental health issues here in Colorado. We know the state legislature is trying to do some things around it because of the mental health issues and depression happens to be one of those serious ones. Um, and it's interesting because if you, you know, study your Bible very much, you know that many Bible characters also experience depression, have experienced depression. That, uh, you know, everything from King David to Moses to Elijah, that uh, their depression can settle in on anybody at any time if we aren't a, careful about it and if we aren't aware of it so that you're not alone uh, if you're experiencing or have experienced some depression at some time. I just might put in a plug. Uh, I don't know if you are a member of Plum Creek. You might have heard Pastor Doug's sermon last Sunday. If you didn't, and if you're not a regular member of Plum Creek, I just encourage you to go online and listen to his sermon. That was a powerful sermon on health and uh, he did a great job with that. And he talked about the various ways of, of people within scriptures were depressed. So I certainly encourage you to uh, deal with that or talk, uh, look at that as well, right? Here's the problem with depression is that many times it, when it reaches that bottom stage, 
then people come become at risk with that. And the risk, of course, primary risk of that severe depression, of course, is suicide. And we want to make sure that, that we are aware of that, what we can do about that, what we can do about for ourselves as well as what we can uh, do that for other people. This is not a seminar on uh, suicide, but of course you can't talk about being severely depressed or clinically depressed without in some ways talking about the possibility or the threat or the risk of suicide. At, uh, I've got my chai tea, so just hang on for a moment, okay? Here are some amazing statistics. 2017, three years ago, there was 100, I mean, 1,175 people who committed suicide in 2017. Isn't that amazing? 1,175. And each year it's been consistent within a few hundred of those uh, figures uh, throughout the years. And men commit suicide three times more than women do because, unfortunately, they're using a more potent and powerful means of suicide. And that is usually firearms. 50% of those men who commit suicide do it because of, with firearms. Women generally use poison, and so there's much more opportunity for rescue, for res resuscitation. And it's important to say that not all of those 1,175 people who committed suicide in, in 2017 were depressed. There's a lot of different reasons for suicide. That uh, I don't want to say, well, all of those 1,175 people were depressed. Because sometimes people commit suicide out of anger. And um, I had a minister couple come to Uray. We're, we live in Uray. And, and I had a retreat center there where people could come and spend some time. And the pastor's wife came there. It's been several years ago. Because their son had committed suicide. The tragedy. And they were telling me the story. And he is married. And had been married. Had a couple of children. And she wanted out of the, out of the marriage. She wanted a divorce and she was pursuing. He said, no, let's work on it. We can do it. Our problems aren't that difficult. I, we, we can. We can solve this. And he was committed to doing something about it. And, and then he found out she was seeing another man. So he left her a note. I hope this makes you happy. So sometimes committing suicide can be out of anger, can be out of revenge, can be out of illness. Sometimes people who are going through a really difficult time physically, that that's a way to commit suicide. And, and to resolve the problem, when I was doing my a study way back years ago, that basically people are not afraid of death. They're more afraid of the process of dying. Because that certainly creates so many difficulties and problems, both for themselves as well as their family. And it's that process. So sometimes during that process, then somebody says, you know, it would be easier if I just wasn't here 
or if I were gone. Sometimes people will commit suicide because of grief and loss, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. And, uh, but out of that 1175 people, two-thirds of those people who committed suicide were depressed, and it was because of depression. Now, two-thirds of 1175, I'm not a mathematician, that's somewhere around 700 people, isn't it? That's what my calculations were. About 700 people in 2015 committed suicide because they were so depressed and severe depression. Now, if there's 700 in the year 2015, do you know what that means? That means two per day, isn't it? Two per day are committing suicide because of depression. Now, that is astounding, astonishing, frightening news and information. Because according to that, today, Saturday, there will probably be two people who take their own lives. And what a tragedy. And this morning, I hope you're here because you know somebody who's going through a really depressed time and you really want to find some information to be able to help them, or that you're going through a tough time. The statistics are that, you know, I'll allude to this a little bit later on, 6 to 12% of the people are going through severe depression at any given moment. And so out of this group, that would mean 10 to 15 people, something like that, may be experiencing some depression themselves, and I'll address that. I'll address that in a couple of minutes. So let's look at the signs and the symptoms of depression. And here's what we're going to do, is that, that as I work through each one of these sections, if you have a question or a comment that you would like to ask or to make, Please feel free to do so. This is a workshop. This isn't, this isn't therapy. This is a workshop. So uh, Rachel has a microphone back there. So if you have a question, please raise your hand or a comment, and we'll get to that and get to you immediately. We won't wait. We will have some time at the end of the, of the seminar to do some question and answer. But I also want, if this raises some immediate questions or some concerns or things that are not that need to be said or whatever, we want to give you that opportunity as well, all right? So, that was the first section. Any comments or questions or anything about those statistics at this particular point? Okay. Way in the back. I'm just curious if you know of the number of people that did commit suicide, how many of them were under the care of psychiatrists and were on drugs? Uh, yeah. I don't know that. Um, I imagine that some of them were, um, and that's a real tragedy when, you know, someone's under the care. I, I don't know those statistics. I've had one in the 30, 35 years of my practice. I've had one person, one client who has committed suicide, and uh, a real tragedy, this was probably 20, 25 years ago. And uh, I was seeing him, he was going through a tough time again, similar situation with the marriage, that he was wanting to work on it, and I did a, a note 
suicide contract. That's one of the things that we do with people is have you know sign a no uh, suicide contract. Here's what we're doing. Every couple of days, you set up an appointment with them. I did it on a Friday. I was going to see him again on Monday. And then I get the call from the coroner's office who said, you know, Bill, whatever they do, uh, we'd like to let the therapist know that, that he did commit suicide. And the coroner said he was on 911, called 911, and he said, she's out with another man last night. And so I'm hoping again this makes her happy. And the, and the 911 dispatcher heard the gun go off. So I don't know what the statistics are there, but, but many of them would be under that. Do you have any idea about that? I'm sorry. I can't hear you. There was a case here in Colorado not that long ago. The kid that was, uh, I think he was accused of murder, and he was under the, and the implication is it's the drugs that are doing it. We'll get to that in a moment because medication can cause persons, people to really be depressed and uh, uh, then could lead to suicide as well. There's a hand down here, Rachel. Sir, did you have a hand up? Just Colorado. Just Colorado. That's no statistic. 1175 in 2015 was just Colorado. Yes. Okay, ready to move on, or is there another? You got it? Okay. Let's look at some of the signs and symptoms. We have one more question. Okay. Sorry, I'm just curious of the 1175, do you know what percentage is like age? Does age seem to? Uh, yes. The, the majority of people who commit suicide are between, 20, uh, between 45 and 67 is the majority. There. However, we do know among teenagers that there's a real serious problem there, but, but the middle age is the largest group of, of those who are committing suicide. Like that. So that's the statistic I have. Does that help? Okay. Signs and symptoms of depression. There are four areas that we need to be aware of and to look at when we are thinking about helping somebody or evaluating somebody or coming in contact with somebody who might be depressed, all right? Those four areas are, number one, their emotional state, number two, their thought process, number three, their behaviors, and number four, their physical, so their physical characteristics and things. So let's look at the emotions for a moment then. The emotions, are they feeling sad? Anxiety, guilt, anger, uh, mood swings, lack of emotional responsiveness, feelings of helplessness, hopelessness, irritability. Those are all, well, not all, those are some of the emotional characteristics of those who are experiencing depression or sign or symptom of depression. Those emotional aspects. The second part that we look at and evaluate are the thoughts. The thought process, uh, frequent self-criticism. Sometimes people really get down on themselves. Oh, I'm no good. I can't do anything. Everything in my life goes wrong. It really does create a very difficult problem for me. A lot of self-criticism, a lot of self-blame, worry, pessimism, impaired memory and concentration, 
indecisiveness, confusion, a tendency to believe that others uh, are, uh, see you in a negative light, thoughts of death and suicide, of course. Those are some of the thought processes. We'll get into more, get more of the thought process here a little bit later on. But that's one of the characteristics and symptoms that we really do uh, evaluate and assess. The behaviors, what are they doing? Uh, so that there's crying spells or withdrawal from others, neglect of responsibility, loss of interest in personal appearance, loss of motivation, slowed down, uh, increased use of alcohol or drugs. Those behaviors can also be a sign or a symptom of someone who is experiencing depression. Physical aspects, um, chronic fatigue, Lack of energy, sleeping too much or too little, uh, overeating or loss of appetite, constipation, weight loss or gain, headaches, loss of sexual desire, unexplained aches and pains. Those are the kind of the four different areas that, that we look at and examine when we think about seeing whether or not this person is experiencing some depression. If you, let, look at the next line, if you have been experiencing some of the following signs and symptoms most of the day, nearly every day, and here's one of the keys, for at least two week period of time, you may be suffering from depression. That's one of the ways in which we kind of categorize or, or sort out whether it's just kind of mild depression or whether it's really de being depressed or not, is whether these depressive symptoms have been there for at least every day for a two-week period of time. And if that be the case, then we say, you know, we really need to see about getting some help and, and uh, doing something about it. So again, just on the next part there, I just persistent, sad, and anxious, or empty mood, feelings of hopelessness, irritability, feelings of guilt, and just kind of listing those out, loss of interest or pleasure in hobbies, decrease. Uh, energy or fatigue, moving or talking more slow, and just kind of a little bit more detail of those symptoms that were listed up here under the, under the uh, top four there. Not everyone who is depressed experiences every symptom. So it doesn't have to be all of these symptoms. It doesn't have to be, you know, two out of three. It's just as if you see a person or you're experiencing some of these feelings and emotions, uh, in any one of these categories, then it would be very helpful for you or helping somebody else to be able to uh, um, talk with them about that. Some people experience only a few symptoms, while others may experience many of the symptoms. So those are the symptoms that, that um, signs and symptoms that, that are very common that we look at when we begin to kind of assess and evaluate the level of depression and where a person might be at this particular point. So, questions or comments about that part of it? Okay? Move on to the next, to the next page there. And um, what I've done is uh, obviously just had a little brain um, uh, image there, all right? And the importance of that is that 
This is what we call the limbic system. And if you're a psychiatrist here this morning, please don't correct me up in front of everybody. Talk to me afterwards, at, uh, because my poor self-image and ego would be shattered if you did, all right? And these three areas really do kind of control the emotions and all of that. On the very top, you see the thalamus. Uh, going on down to the right, you see the hippocampus. And don't on farther down, you see the amygdala. I think that's how you pronounce that. Those three areas really do control the emotional state and emotional condition of us in, in, in our head. So when somebody says to you, oh, it's all in your mind, they're right. You know, that's where it starts, that's where depression starts, is in our heads, in our minds, how we're thinking about things. But please don't say that to somebody. Please don't say to them, oh, but it's all in your head, don't worry about it because that can just push them farther into depression, making them feel guilty, oh, that's just in my head, I shouldn't be worried about it, should be doing something, or it pushes them to feel shame, that, uh, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this way, what's wrong with me, or whatever. So, well, those four areas, three areas, then really it does start within our minds and within, within our uh, heads there. So, um, What are the main causes of depression then? Let's go to the next page there, page four. They're the main causes of depression. There are a number of factors that may increase the chances of depression, including the following. We're all right. Again, as we were talking a few minutes ago, medications. Some medications can cause people to be depressed. And they list a few of the examples here, typical kinds of examples, particularly for teenagers, acne and things. But if psychiatrists, family physicians aren't careful, then certainly medications can cause a person to even feel more depressed. They're supposed to help a person to be able to rise above that and feel a little bit better so that they're not really crashing but kind of get back up and, and able to move. I certainly work with doctors in helping people to, you know, uh, with their depression and know that, that uh, the medication can be helpful in getting people out of those the very bottom of depression, so then we can start talking about some of the causes and um, uh, difficulties of the depression. So now, of course, it has to be a medical doctor uh, who prescribes medication. PhD does not prescribe medication, so it's a family physician, uh, psychiatrist, somebody in the medical field, a nurse practitioner who's supervised by a medical doctor who prescribes the uh, medication. But along with that medication should come then some help and some counseling with somebody. So that you're not just relying, or this person just isn't relying on medication, but they really are uh, getting some help from things that they need for, us, uh, for that as well, all right? So certain medications. Conflict can cause depression. Look at that. Depression is someone who has 
some depression in someone who has the biological vulnerability to develop depression may result from personal conflicts or disputes within family members or friends. So I don't know how well you are at handling conflict. Most of us have a tough time with dealing with conflict. That if something happens in the family or with friends, that we really do have struggle with how do we deal with conflict. And many times we will keep it inside. We won't really talk about it. We won't talk about what, we're, what happened or what we're really feeling or thinking about it. And so it just kind of settles in us. And that can lead then to some depression for sure. Next one is abuse. Uh, that either past, physical, sexual, or emotional abuse can increase the vulnerability to clinical depression. And what I hear a lot of times from folks is, well, that happened years ago, so, so it's all in the past, and I've just kind of forgotten about it, and have gone on, whether there's been physical, sexual, emotional abuse, you know, way back then. Oh, I've just gone on. You have to deal with those past experiences and the past abuse, because what happens is, all of that gets pushed down into the one of those areas in your brain and stays there. And then what can happen is something comes along and triggers something, and it's not about this situation, it's about that situation. And unless you really spend time dealing with it, working your way through it, then you can still be vulnerable to, be, to depression because of past uh, abuse, sexual uh, or physical abuse of some kind as well. Death or loss. Uh, sadness or grief from the death or loss of a loved one, though natural, may increase the risk of depression. And certainly if you have, you know, death of somebody, a friend or whatever, that um, my mother passed away January 15th, I think, of last year. And my sister, who happens to be here, Kathy, raise your hand, Kathy. There she is. Um, uh, she was with mom when mom took her last breath. And so, certainly, Kathy has been working through some of the issues around that. You may have also experienced some death or loss of a loved one, a parent, a child or something. And all of us as siblings, there's five of us, then on January 15th, is that the right date, Kathy? Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. That's what We were all in contact with each other, all the siblings doing a group thread text, you know, saying, wow, it was a year ago today. Well, we miss mom, and, you know, this and that, and how are you doing, and that. So certainly grief or loss is a way that uh, can push us to, or for us to experience depression as well. Genetics, a family history of depression may increase the risk. If you come from a family where grandmother, mother, dad, grandfather have all been experiencing some depression, that those can be genetic issues that get passed down to us and it increases the risk. It's thought that depression is a complex trait, meaning that there are probably many different genes that each uh, exert small effects on us rather than a single gene that could, contributes to uh, disease uh, risk. The genetic of depression, like most psychiatric disorders, are not as simple or as straightforward as a purely genetic 
disease such as, maybe there's a couple of them there. So, again, be aware of your family history. Many times counselors will work with you around, you know, tell me about your family, your parents, your grandparents, do a genogram. And was mom uh, depressed? Was grandma depressed? Was grandpa depressed? To see kind of what traits there are in the family that may be passed along and down to you as well. Major events uh, can cause depression. Look at this, even good events, such as starting a new job, graduating, or getting married can lead to depression. See, there's distress, D-I-S-T-R-E-S-S, that's distress and that can cause depression. Those are the negative things, uh, stressors that affect us. The positive things we call eustress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S. Those are the positive things, like you're just getting married, or you've you know, been to a great event, or you're starting a new job, or something like that. So moving, losing a job or income, getting divorced, uh, or retiring. However, the syndrome of clinical depression is, it's never just a normal response to stressful life events. That um, these are important issues for you to be aware of, for you to be aware of when you're working with somebody, when you're talking with somebody, to see exactly what they're going through, what's the event that's happened in their life that may be causing some of the depression as well. Other personal problems, problems such as uh, social isolation due to other mental illnesses, or being cast out of the family, rejected by them, uh, or a social group can contribute to the risk of developing clinical Depression, because being alone in a situation and in your circumstance or in this person, being alone can contribute to the depression and even make it that much more serious and more difficult. If a person is alone, if they're isolated, if they're feeling rejected, those are symptoms and causes then it can lead to depression. Serious illnesses. Uh, sometimes depression coexists with a major illness or may be triggered by another medical condition. So certainly physical issues uh, or illnesses can cause depression. Uh, substance, uh, substance abuse. Nearly 30% of people with substance abuse problems also have major or clinical depression. We call that a dual diagnosis. Where there's depression, but also some issues with drugs or alcohol or something. Uh, even if drugs or, or alcohol temporarily make you feel better, they ultimately will aggravate this depression. With it. So on down, breakup of relationships. If you, if this person has just experienced a, a breakup of a relationship, and it doesn't matter whether you're the breaker or the breakee, you can still experience some depression because of a breakup of the relationship. Uh, Long-term poverty, bullying or victimization the cause of depression. Caring for persons with long-term illness or disability. And this is one of the areas that, that we need to be aware of, that caregivers will also experience depression. Uh, if they're caring for somebody who is going through a really long-term uh, illness or some kind of physical issue or something that's long-term, uh, that they experience depression. And here's the difficulty then. As they experience depression, they feel guilty about it because they're not the ones that, who's having physical problems. 
So they feel guilty or ashamed. I shouldn't be feeling guilty. Look what they're going through. Or look what they're saying. And yet it's very real and a normal part of the process for caregivers to feel depressed as well. Uh, people who have a more sensitive nature where they are, you know, kind of take things in and all of that. And then, of course, we have SAD, seasonal affective disorder, can be a cause of depression as well. That, man, it's that time of year. Or I remember Christmases used to be, you know, really awful or really bad, and mom or dad would, you know, use alcohol or drugs or something. And so those seasonal affective disorders certainly are part of it as well. So those are some of the causes, not all of the causes, but uh, certainly some of those, those are some of the causes then for depression uh, for individuals. Questions or comments about that? Yes, right here. Pretty loud enough. Do you, uh, have you dealt with any research dealing with uh, the effects of uh, social media increasing the conflict part of depression? Yeah. You know, I haven't done a great deal because I live in uh, paradise over in Uray, so we don't, we don't have to deal with so But certainly, we have seen the effects of, of the social media around bullying and victimization of people that uh, really does contribute to and lead to, to uh, depression. So parents, please monitor your children's activities on social media uh, because what goes on and what people, kids are saying about each other or to each other or whatever, uh, whatever can really affect and impact their self-esteem, their level of depression, and as we have seen in the past, can lead to some suicide as well with, with, among our teenagers and kids. But among adults as well, that uh, this is an issue. So that, that's a great, do you have some information yeah, about that? I don't. Does anybody else have any information about books or articles that deal with that? Um, so the Wall Street Journal just had an article that was talking about social media effects and depression, especially with teenage girls. Um, and, that, and it was talking about how it's really prevalent. The social media affecting and things? All right. I think Wall it's Street called, Journal? I think it's called, uh, the article is something like... Um, the social media experiment and how it's affecting teenagers. Okay. There you go. And we are impressed that you read the Wall Street Journal. Does anybody else have any information about that part of it? Yes. Anyone else who has specific information, right. maybe an any article? Specific information or an article or something. Is that your hand right back there? Yeah, I was wondering if you could comment on what's known as the father wound. Um, I've done a lot of looking into that, and I was, I was just wondering what your thoughts are about that. Of course, that doesn't have to do with social media, so let's, I'm, I'm gonna, I'll get to that in just a minute. Is there anybody else who has any information on social media or articles or anything? Okay. The, the, the relationship of dads to their children 
is one of the most important relationships that people can have. And the wound of dads. Uh, Larry Crabb has a book out, The Silence of Adam. I don't have that on my bibliography. But he talks about the importance of the relationship that dad has, particularly with sons, but also with daughters, that um, the important, in, important influence that he has uh, with them because he gives them confidence, he gives them assurance, he lets them know that it's okay, that it's normal to go through problems because he's been through problems. And so if there's criticism, if there's neglect, and you know, you know, dads can be really helpful and supportive, but dads can also be pretty mean and vicious and abusive and saying, ah, oh, you're never going to amount to anything. Why didn't you do better than that? You only got an A minus on this. Why didn't you get an A? What's wrong with you? And, and really being more abusive to it. So there is a great deal of importance on the dad's children relationship, both with their sons as well as with their daughters and things. But certainly do some more research and, and uh, uh, study on that, yes. Other questions or comments about the causes of depression? Can you just say the book name again? The book that I just did, it was Larry Crabb, C-R-A-B-B, and it is The Silence of Adam. The Silence of Adam. It's an older book, um, probably 15, 20 years ago, but I think you can still get it. If you don't, I've got two or three copies, so I'll, I'll give you one. Yeah, but you have to come to your ready to <laughs> Any other comments or questions about the causes? Okay, there's a hand right back here, Rachel. Give me just a second. <coughs> I don't move so fast in these boots. <laughs> I'm just curious, one of the things you hear for children who are suffering from addiction is basically let them hit bottom. Let them, let hit, let bottom. them hit bottom, kind of let them go, let them hit bottom. No. No. Thank you. Because bottom is suicide. And so um, I, I don't like that phrase, let them hit bottom, because that really is a risk. Now, sometimes we have to let them get to a point where they recognize and realize that they can't do it on their own, whether they do, you know, uh, AA or whatever. It's a recognition that you can't do it on your own. You need help with it. But um, using that phrase, let them hit bottom, I just I cringe when I hear that. Okay? Any other comments? Where you think, okay? Um, I'm just curious if you have any research or knowledge on the relationship between Alzheimer's and dementia and depression genetics. Like, I don't. And and um, I forgot the question. What was the question? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'm teasing. <laughs> uh, but certainly, the stage developmental stage that we all go through as we reach that last stage, generativity of what Eric Erickson calls, that it's very important that we look back over our lives and feel good about who we are and what we have done with our lives. Uh, otherwise, we move into despair. That life hasn't been worth anything. My life has been a failure. Look at all the negative things I've done. And so that stage of life is really important. Now, how that's associated with dementia and Alzheimer, I think is really part of the importance of doing some more research on that particular aspect as well. 
Okay. Cameron, can I just point you out really quick? Yeah, would you raise your hand? You might want to chat with Cameron Crawford here. Um, she would probably have some more information for you. Okay, good. There's another question back here. Hi, since we're talking about the causes of depression, my question is, have you experienced also within abuse, spiritual abuse of people within, since we're in the church, right, talking about misaligning scriptures, how that can be if you're, you know, I know there's so many disorders like narcissistic personality disorder, if you're connected in that, but since we're in the church, I figured I'd ask that question. If that leads to depression. If Unfortunately, the church, big church, can be an abusive and an oppressive institution. I'm a pastor. I've been that way for miles 70, no, number of years. But I know that sometimes we don't do a very good job of really helping people deal with things, and we're quick to lay guilt on people, shame on people, using the Bible as a pounding stick. Look, this is what the Bible says you do. You can't do that because it's, and you use it as a weapon rather than as a support and a help to people. And so the church, unfortunately, can be uh, an abusive place. And so many times is that it's so subtle that people aren't really aware of it. And it makes it very difficult for them to be able to, to really deal with it, to know how to deal with it. And so they um, uh, live in that kind of environment and the context of that that makes it difficult. So. So find a good church that, that is open and honest and authentic uh, about who you are, your struggles and the difficulties and things, for sure. Okay? Over here, we have another question over here. And while I'm walking over there, um, one of the gentlemen was just saying, if you do a Google search just on social media and the connection between social media and depression, quite a few Looks like good things come up. Yeah. Who had the other question? Right here. I was wondering about depression that's not necessarily genetic, but circumstantial after like trauma and trauma and trauma where it's not really anyone else, you know, maybe parents, grandparents, but. Um, because of an event you mean or a circumstance or something like yes, that? Yes. yes. It, uh, that can be. A, a major source of, of depression when a person goes through a very difficult time in their life where where things aren't going well for them, they lose their job, they get a divorce, they're breaking up, or they're experiencing um, you know a medical diagnosis of some kind. That certainly that can create some depression uh, for a person as well. We'll talk about how to deal with those in just a moment. Did you have a specific? issue that, that would be helpful? Not necessarily. I just was wondering, yeah. as opposed to, like, you know, is it from genetic, or can it just be also from the circumstances? Oh, it, and most of the time, it's from circumstances and situations around us. Occasionally, it's genetic, and that's what we call a dystonic disorder, where a person just kind of lives with depression, and they're kind of the Eeyores of life. You know, nothing ever goes right, and they're, 
on that. But most of the depression, severe depression, has to do with, with the context and our circumstances and events in our lives. Thank you. Okay, right here, Rachel. And tell me what time it is. Uh, 10.56. What's that? 10.56. You're 10 pushing 56. 11. Okay. <laughs> Do you find that if someone suffered with depression for years and then managed to get out of that and recover from that, that they're more apt mm. to go into depression later on because of things? That's a good question. Um, yes, it can be. Um, you know, you work through an event or something in your life and then you get through that but then another event happens, and that's what triggers it. That's what part of the brain thing, one of those brain events in there is a memory storage place that stores the memory, and it can be a trigger then for that past event or for the depression or something, and so, yes, it can create some, some more depression uh, or a renewal of the depression. Let's move, since I have three minutes. Well, no, you have 30 minutes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Let's look at how do we help people then. Um, if you know somebody who's going through depression, depressed time, um, I have that under the inter intervention for others, page number six there, and have an action plan for helping others experiencing depression. Don't just kind of wander around, oh no, what I'm doing. Well, here's some good things that uh, can, can be helpful. Number one, determine the relationship that you have with this person. Uh, who is this person to you? For example, if it's one of your children, if it's your spouse, if it's your loved one, then that's a closer relationship that you have with that person than if it happens to be a neighbor or an acquaintance or a friend of somebody. Certainly with somebody who is a family member, then you can be much more proactive in helping that person to deal with the depression and get some help for so, so. Make sure that you know what kind of relationship you have with that person. If it's a friend of a friend, then the best thing you might do is get that person connected with that friend who is, you might say, you know, Susan, you really seem to be down, or Jim, you really seem to be kind of down. You know, have you talked with your spouse about this, or your mom and dad about this? And, uh, you know, help them and initiate the process of them talking to somebody about that. Number... Number two is evaluate the risk of suicide. Always evaluate the risk of suicide with that. Um, again, um, look at the warning signs of suicide down below that. Threatening to hurt or kill himself or herself. Looking for ways to kill himself or herself. You know, seeking pills or seeking firearms or something. Talking about writing or writing about death, dying, or suicide. Expressing hopelessness, feelings of anger, rage, or seeking revenge, feeling trapped like there's no way out of this situation. I'm, I'm trapped in this situation and I don't see any way out of it. Increasing drugs or alcohol use, withdrawing from family or friends, uh, undergoing dramatic changes in mood, feelings of no reason to live, uh, or no sense of purpose to life, that their life really does seem to be empty and there's no reason for it. People may have signs that are not related, listed here. 
So just be sensitive to the person that you are talking with and be aware of that emotional content that uh, they are experiencing or the behavior or the uh, physical issues or something. Now that was adapted and I have adapted some of the things for mental health first aid, USA, it's a manual that uh, really deals with a lot of the mental disorders and things. But uh, so that, that is helpful uh, in that area. All right, so evaluate the, the risk of suicide. Then number three is listen non-judgmentally. And um, there we go. effective communication skills, page number seven, effective communication skills for non-judgmental listening. The key word there is non-judgmental. And then listen, all right? So you focus on two areas for yourself. Make sure that your attitude is an appropriate attitude to deal with people who are experiencing depression. If your attitude is, you know, people who are depressed are wimps, you know, they shouldn't be doing that, what's wrong with them, they're weak, ah, they need to get over it, come on, they need to just, you know, get up by the boot, their bootstraps and all that. If that's your attitude, please stay away from somebody who's depressed because you won't be helpful to them. In fact, you'll push them deeper into depression. Again, make them feel guilty or shame them or something. So here are the three characteristic attitudes that are important for your attitude. Number one, to be empathic and have empathy. To know that depression really does occur to some people. Most people. Be compassionate about that and be understanding about that. So you really do have good information, you're compassionate, you're understanding, and you're empathetic towards them. Then the second part of that is good communication skills with this person. Number one is verbal skills. So that you ask questions that show you genuinely care about them. Jim, how are you doing? I'm concerned about you. You know, you seem a little bit down today. You know, what's going on? Can, I, can we talk about that? Uh, see, uh, clarification about what you are hearing from that person. Check your understanding by restating what they have said. Those are good, good communication skills, aren't they? What I hear you saying is, and those just really good communication skills there as well. Listen to not only what was said, but how it was said to you. For example, if, you know, Susan says, oh yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing fine, yeah. Yeah, I'm doing fine. Yeah, everything's okay. You know. Their nonverbal communication is saying something very different, isn't it? That it's not okay and fine to do it. All right, so listen to not only what the words are saying, but how they are saying it as well. Be patient even when the person may not be communicating well. Don't say to them, hey, come on, you know, pick it up here. What, what, what are you saying? Don't be critical. Be non-judgmental. And listen, be patient in that. Be, uh, don't be critical and don't express your frustration at the person. Come on, man. You need to shake out of it. Step up to the plate. Come on, you're okay. Don't worry about that. And so don't uh, express your frustration at the person. Avoid unhelpful advice like pull yourself together or cheer up. Um, or you shouldn't be feeling that way. Uh, do not interrupt the person, especially to share your opinions or your ideas about things, you know, say, oh, well, you know, I think that depression is really, you know, overrated, uh, overrated, and it's really not that 
uh, big a, a deal. And so, you know, depression really isn't too serious, so you just need to work out. That's my ideas and my thoughts about it. Don't share those. Avoid confrontation with the person unless it is to prevent harmful or dangerous acts. If this person really is depressed to the point of thinking about hurting themselves, then you need to take action. Uh, and even if you know that person well or when you don't know that person well. And offer to be with them. You know, listen Susan, I'll go with you. You know, let's go and talk to somebody. Because I'll be with you. And let them know that they're not alone in this. That, that you care about it. And that you will walk with them through this. Whether it's, you know, talk to somebody. Whether it's to a hospital. Say, man, you're really depressed, or right? you're, you know, hearing some depression. I'm concerned about you. So let's go to the hospital, and they can do some evaluation. I'm going to go with you. And so you you don't want to be confrontive unless it's helpful. Then the nonverbal skill, skills. Pay close attention to what the person is saying. So don't be looking at your phone while you're talking to them, and uh, you know, texting somebody. But pay attention to them. Maintain comfortable eye contact with them. Don't stare. Don't have a funny look on your face. Maintain comfortable eye contact with them. Maintain open body posture or position. Don't cross your arms over your body. Oh, yeah, well, don't be bored. Because this is immediately a sign of, mm, I'm pulling away or I'm withdrawing or I'm really not wanting to hear what you have. And sit down, even if the person is standing. Sit alongside the person and angled toward the person as you're talking with them. And then, of course, don't fidget, you know, and be concerned about what, what they're saying or what's happening there. So, so that certainly is listening non-judgmentally. So let's stop through there for a moment. Any questions or comments or corrections about that? Yes, sir. The biggest problem I've seen is I keep hearing they're an adult, they have to decide to do that on their own. If you see somebody you think needs help, how do you convince them to get the help when they don't think they need help? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a tough one. Because, of course, if it's an adult, and they have to get, you know, help themselves, they have to be willing to do that, they, even going to a hospital or something, it has to be them who does it. Um, but um, really talking with them, staying with them as you're talking with the, what they're feeling, what they, you know, what they're experiencing and things, talking with them about that, so they really know that you're there with them, that you care about them, that they, you've made a connection with them, and then again attempt to say, hey, listen, let's go talk to somebody. I've got somebody that I know. We've got some list of people here. So let's go and talk with somebody. I'm going to go with you and stay right there with them. If it's, a, if it's an adolescent or a child, then certainly you have more influence and uh, a power to be able to say, look, you know, and we're going to go get some help. If this person is really suicidal, what, an adult, call 911. If you really think that this person is a risk to themselves, don't hesitate to call 911. I'd rather make a mistake 
by doing something positive than not doing something and regretting it later on. And I have called 911 on adults who have resisted and refused to go get help. And then I say, look, you know, we need help. We better do something. Okay? Yes, sir. If, uh, if you're in a situation where the depression has caused some abuse, something from home, and you happen to be a, a mandatory reporter, would you recommend reporting anonymously to, to keep that effectual relationship with that child or by name? Yeah, well, that's a tough one. Mandatory reporting. If you have, you know, if you're working with somebody, a child uh, or a, a minor that you are a mandatory reporter for, then whether to do it anonymously. Could you repeat the quote? Oh, I think you Okay. Whether to, whether to report that anonymously or whether to report that directly. Of course, in my disclaimers and notes and things that I have people sign, it says right there that I'm a mandatory reporter and any abuse or anything, I have to report. So hopefully and usually the person already knows that. Uh, with it. Now, if it's an adult who is an abuser, uh, I was going to say something snarky, like after you pick him up off the floor, then you can, you can decide, but you don't want to do that if he's an abuser. Uh, so uh, if, he's, if he's an abuser and you know that, that, you, that you have your Amanda reporter talk that over with him and say, look, Jim, it's best for you to report this, but I have to do it if you don't. And uh, then to carry it from there. Now, if you're trying to maintain relationship with somebody, sometimes that's important, but your mandatory reporting responsibility overrides your relationship with that person um, in most of the cases. If you can do it anonymously, then certainly that is a, a good way of doing it as well. Anybody else on the communication issues? Okay. Then give support. Give support and information to that to that person. Remember we're we're still giving uh, under the whole area of intervening and how you help somebody. So give support and information. Uh, page number eight. Uh, treat the person with respect. Do not blame the person for the depression. If you were stronger, if you were this or that, then you wouldn't be depressed. Don't blame them for it. Give them realistic expectations about people do get through depression. There is help for people who are going through depression. Offer them consistent support and understanding. Give them hope for recovery. Boy, that's an important part of it too. Is for people to know that there is hope for recovery. That many people experience depression and with the proper health, with good kind of counseling, medication, whatever it might be, that there is hope for recovery. And you don't be un don't be unrealistic. Don't say, oh well, you'll get through this, you know, or oh, no, you know, I know a lot of people. Don't be unrealistic about it, but be give them realistic hope that there is possibility of them moving through this. Then provide practical help. And certainly in the, in the back of your folder are some excellent referral sources and things right here in Castle Rock for uh, you to be able to become aware of and uh, help this person get connected to those. Uh, there's a whole, 
new way of doing therapy now it's called teletherapy and that is for people who can't find don't find somebody here that can do over FaceTime or Skype and of course out of your way I do quite a bit of that folks from, folks from Minnesota and Utah that I see over um, uh, either FaceTime or, or Skype or something so provide some practical help for them and then offer information to them about again the resources and things and then engage self-help for them uh, give uh, off, uh, uh, let them know about other people who care whether it's family members or, or not but connect them with other people who care uh, make sure that they are doing exercise if this is just kind of a mild case or a moderate case of depression make sure that they are exercising self-help books that are available there relaxation therapy can be very important and of course light therapy and again those are adapted from the mental health first aid uh, usa book on that um, any questions or comments about that part of it there's a lot of good podcasts too now. there's a lot of good information out yeah. there yes and the state of colorado she said there's good podcasts out there yes and um, uh, people's own experiences, people, you know, the kind of help that's available. So, so there really is good resources that are out there. Um, however, Colorado ranks very low in people getting help and the resources. And so we really do need to be more proactive in, in uh, supporting the, the various counseling centers and health centers around as well as uh, encouraging people to, to get connected to those as well. I don't know what you mean by light care. Oh, uh, um, sometimes people find it helpful to sit under lights. Man, this is helpful. I feel so energized this morning, you know? No, but really, um, that uh, sometimes light therapy, like uh, fluorescent lights or bright lights, can be helpful in helping people to get through a depressed time. Um, so I think we have one right over here. Okay. Sorry, this is excuse me, going back to what we talked about previously about the warning signs. Um, for people who aren't necessarily familiar with depression, I guess this is just a comment, um, there are people who will not have any warning signs, so that's just something to be aware of, mm -hmm. but we cannot expect it. So, okay, good. Um, yeah. good. Yeah, if people aren't really aware of depression for themselves, and we'll, I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment as well, that they, they may not be really aware of what they're experiencing and the level of depression or what they're, what they're thinking about, what they're feeling, and so they could become at risk of that. Yes? I think that's who was So along the lines of the light therapy, I have seasonal depression, so... Um, we call it my happy lifetime. I do 20 minutes every morning from October through March. Um, you just look for the lights and they are specifically, some of them are called sad lights, um, but they'll say on there that they are meant to mimic daylight conditions and they'll tell you exactly what they're for. But I can tell you, at least for me, it really does make a difference. I mean, immediately afterwards, I feel different completely. 
What kind of lights is it? What kind of lights do you use? So it's it's one that I did research on it, and it's specifically meant for sad disorder. Okay. Um, and it's I mean it sits on the counter about that big. All right. It's just got two different settings on it, and it looks like a fluorescent light. But one of the things I did in my research is I found out fluorescent lights don't actually fully mimic it. So it's a specific white light. It's a specific light wavelength. Uh, it is what you need. Okay. All right. Now, just let me say something about intervention for yourself, because that's the next page on this as well. We gave you help for other people, but now intervention for your for yourself. Now, if the statistics are right, and they say that someplace between six to twelve percent of people experience depression at any given time across our country, that means. I don't know, we've got maybe 100 people here, that there's probably 10, maybe 12 people this morning with us who are experiencing some depression. And so I just want to speak to you personally this morning for a moment and to know that you're not alone in this, that there are people who care about you, people who can help, and that you are not alone in this. And number two, it's not your fault, that sometimes we blame ourselves for it and um, uh, so those are two of the first things. If you look at the next page there, it says intervention for yourself. Evaluate your symptoms. Have a good insight. As she was saying, sometimes people aren't really aware of their depression, that they, they think it's, oh, you know, it's not okay to be depressed, or my family, you know, would really be upset if they knew I was depressed. But evaluate yourself honestly and have good insight so you know what's going on. Develop effective self-care for, for yourself, all right? And look at Duke, the Wheel of Health from Duke University. This is a medical school, um, the Wheel of Health there. If you look at the right top side there, it says, you know, for what it means to be healthy, how to maintain good health. Certainly there they have movement, exercise, rest. You go on down, it says nutrition. Uh, take eating right, uh, personal and professional development. Then at the bottom is physical environment. Then come around the wheel is relationships and communication. These are all the ingredients and characteristics that are important to maintain good health. And look what they have on the next one, spirituality. They have identified spirituality as one of the components for a healthy individual. So make sure that you are involved in some kind of church and some kind of spiritual relationship for yourself, that uh, that's so important. Certainly AA, you know, encourages that higher being, however you define that higher being. And I won't turn into a preacher this morning, but uh, certainly maintain and know your own spirituality and how important that is for a good health um, helping us for yourself. A lot of doctors and medical uh, settings are beginning to bring in uh, uh, therapists and things to talk to people who are depressed about what's going on with them. And one of the components that they talk about is their own spirituality. So um, make sure that you are looking over this wheel of health, that you have those at the last one up there, is your mind-body um, a connection. And those are extremely important then in terms of your own 
physical health. But if you're experiencing that this morning, I just want to sympathize, empathize with you, and encourage you to get some help and to know that you're not alone in that process as well, right? Develop good, safe relationships is the next one there after that. that um, and, the, and the key word there is safe relationships so that somebody can really hear you, understand what you're going through, and that you can be honest and authentic with, that you don't have to hide from, you don't have to put on the, on the, on the mask and the facade, but you can really be honest with that person or those people and really develop a relationship where you can share and you can talk about what's going on. And then identify professional help and don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for help. We all need help at some point. In fact, that was Doug's sermon last Sunday morning was help and how difficult it is sometimes for us to ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for help. And then last number five there is take action. Do something for yourself. You deserve it. It's in your best interest, in your family's interest, it's in spouses, it's in family members. So take action on that, all right? And um, so, uh, Now I want to look at some practical things around um, um, helping people with depression, all right? In your, in your back of your book, there is a sheet that's called Cognitive Distortions, all right? And scenario A is, it's in the back of your book, because Nancy is so unorganized, she didn't get it into your book. <laughs> Or scenario B was, I got this to her late, and she already had the, the uh, books made, so we just put it in there. So you know, you probably, people know which one of those scenarios to <laughs> Cognitive distortions. This is Aaron Beck's um, stuff, Feeling Good Workbook. One of the excellent uh, workbooks around um, uh, helping people. And certainly, it comes under the whole issue of cognitive therapy. CBT is uh, what, what Aaron Beck talks about there. And these are the ten distortions. Cognitive distortions that we, and I have about eight of them, so, so don't worry about it. Your thinking process. Remember the, the importance of our mind and, and how we think about things. So we think all or nothing kind of thoughts. That, oh well, you know, this has to be uh, either this way or that way, and it always has to be this or that, otherwise it's not okay. So all or nothing kind of thinking. It either has to be really good or it's not good at all. Overgeneralization, this is always happening. Uh, this is always the way it is. Or, you know, she always does that, or he always does that. Overgeneralization. Mental filters is that I am kind of filtering through the good and the bad, and I center on mostly the bad. Um, and number four says distorting the positive, so that you know if you make a presentation, for example, and uh, uh, your boss may criticize one aspect of your presentation, but that's all you remember because so many times the you know people can say ten good things about us. 
or about the presentation, but if one negative thing comes up, that's what we remember and we forget about the positive things that are there and only focusing on that. Number five of cognitive distortions is jumping to conclusions. So easy to jump to conclusions. Well, you know, she criticized or he criticized my presentation. That means my job's in jeopardy, that this was a waste of time, that they didn't like it, that it's no good. And so we jump to conclusions about that. Uh, magnification, I like this one, where it's called a binocular, so that we focus on, you, will, you know, if you have binoculars, if you look through a 10 power binocular, everything is 10 times bigger than what it really is. And so we magnify the di difficulties and the, and the negative things to where it's 10 times bigger than what it really is. And we magnify that, or we turn binoculars around. If you turn binoculars around, then everything gets smaller. So the positive things, oh, well, it really wasn't that good, really wasn't that important, and, and that, that part of it then uh, is uh, magnified to be smaller. Emotional reason, oh, I'm such a lousy person, or I feel so bad about it, you know, this really is a, a um, terrible thing that I've done, and, and I feel so sad about it, I'm angry about it, and so emotional reason. Should and must say it. I should be doing a better job. I have to be doing I must be doing a better job. Um, and so that can become a cognitive distortion for us. Labeling. I'm such a bad person, or this is such a bad situation for me. We label it as that rather than looking at it realistically and realizing that, well, this is kind of a difficult situation. Or sometimes I make mistakes, or sometimes I'm not perfect. Now what I do, and that's okay, but that doesn't mean I'm a bad person or a bad si I'm in a bad situation. Or then personalizing and blaming. Oh, it's always my fault. I, I can never do anything right. And so we personalize the negative things and, and we're, we blame ourselves or we blame other people. It's really easy to blame other people as well. Well, if they had just done this, and if Nancy would have just put these things together, this would go to, you know, to, and so we either personalize it that I'm no good or we blame other people. So Aaron Beck's book on feeling good, the workbook there, has excellent exercises in it and uh, uh, he does a, a really good job with that, okay? Any questions or comments about that block? Look over this. Anybody else? Okay. Let's look at page 10 then in treatment self for depression. Um, first of all, most people recover from depression and lead satisfying and productive lives. That's an important thing to remember for ourselves as well as other people. However, there is a range of, of uh, proven effective treatments for depression. Um, number one is supportive counseling. This type of support means that you are a good listener. This type of treatment is appropriate for more mild levels of depression uh, to be a support to this person. Medication, of course, is important at times, 
as we talked about, any medication has to be prescribed by a doctor and things. And sometimes I hear from my people, they say, well, I don't want to tell my family or I don't want them to know that I'm taking antidepressants because they will judge me and they will think that that's, I'm such a weak person. So I'd say to them, okay, well, don't tell them you're on, you take antidepressants. Tell them you take SSRIs. That's what antidepressants are, SSRIs. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So, see? And they say, oh, well, okay, that's okay. Then. You can take SSRIs. Um, but the, these are the designations for a class of antidepressants that work by increasing levels of serotonin in the brain. And so medication can be important and helpful to people. Uh, then psychological therapies, cognitive behavioral therapy, EMDR is important then, interpersonal psychotherapy, behavioral therapy, uh, and certainly as we talked about the light therapy as well. I put in the back then also um, just uh, an exercise. Where's the evidence? And then, number one, the situation. Number two, the mood. The automatic thoughts that come with that. And evidence that supports the, the hot thought. And evidence that does not support the hot thought. And alternative balanced thoughts. And then the moods and how that changes. Changing our thought process is a lot of work. It doesn't come easy and say, oh, well, I'm just going to change my thoughts. Sometimes we have to work at it, and these are kind of daily um, uh, examples of being able to really work through a situation. What was the situation? What was the feeling or the mood that's there? What were the automatic thoughts that are there that just come to us automatically? And then how can we change some of those thoughts? All right? Then last, I have Beck's. Uh, depressive inventory. And um, this is um, a standard, it has been a standard depressive inventory. This is one of the older ones. They've done a revision, revision of it over uh, the years. But certainly taking the inventory, the test, and then it has a list down there as to where you would wind up if you scored such and such on that test or not. It's not in there. I'm sorry, what? That part's not in there. How to score it. So questions number 20 and 21 are not there? No. Okay. I'm sorry, say it? It's, it's online, yes, yes. Okay, okay. That's when I sent that over, apparently that did not get on the front door. So, so Aaron Beck's um, uh, depressive in inventory is a very common one and, and a very important one to be able to kind of look at that and see where you score on that. If you score 1 to 10, that means something. If you score over 40, then you're extreme, extremely depressed and it helps you to do that, okay? With that. So, Rachel, where am I come? You are about up on time. About up on time. Okay. Any questions or comments before we stop? Yes? Um, I would like to discuss your thoughts on neurofeedback as a... Uh, what are your thoughts on neurofeedback as a treatment for depression? Um, neurofeedback? Yes, it can be expensive, um, but it is a non-invasive, I've heard, and drug-free way of treating depression. 
I've, I've read and heard about it. I don't do neurofeedback, uh, of course, but, but uh, that can be any kind of help and therapy that people can have access to. I certainly encourage to give it a try. Not all of them will work. Not all of them are for every, everybody. But to find the help that, that really is important for, for you. So I would, I would certainly encourage that as well. Sorry, I don't do that, but I know that they can do something. Okay? How do you help a young adult child who you see many of these traits in and they even admit themselves that they do, but they refuse to seek out help? Young adult means a, a, a minor or someone who's an adult? 21. 21? Yeah. 21. And they're in college out of state. I'm sorry, what? In college out of state, so not oh, right there. Yeah. That's a tough one, that's for sure. Because you can't make them, as an adult, get help unless you know that they really are suicidal or a threat to themselves. Then you can take action and intervene in their in a, in a situation. But certainly to stay alongside that person and talk with them on a regular basis about how they're doing, any concerns and things that they have, and, if they, and encourage them to go to some of these resources that are there. Take Beck's in depression inventory and see how they're doing, how they would rate themselves and things. And, um, uh, Encourage them to do that. Stay alongside them. Encourage them. Let them know that there's hope and that they can get through this. But they do need to get help. That depression just won't go away with that. Okay?